Welcome to Emmaus Way. <clears throat> Our call to gather this week is The Creation by Jean Murray Walker. It was going well, a perfect rosy sow, a finch, an elephant. Then a giraffe at the last minute, spring up like wow, an exclamation point on legs, a gaff, or maybe not. Her fringy eyelashes, her voice, a bleat soft as a low laugh, a yard-long tongue that blackly licks leaf caches from the sky. She nuzzles her newborn calf, still wet, eyes shut, legs splayed and sliding, the two of them improbable riffraff of the imagination, hang gliding off the cliff of reason. Oh, giraffes, wear your headlamps, gather around, remind me when all seems dark and sane of mystery. Welcome to Emmaus Way. We're a community captivated by the gospel, um, seeking to participate in what God is doing in Durham and all around. Um, announcements? We, so this week we had our first children's training for folks who are going to be working with our children in the coming seasons. Um, this coming week, we will have second children's training. If you came this week, you don't need to repeat. But if you did not come this week and you are, have signed up to do kids stuff, teaching, um, you'll want to attend next week. Also, during the, our first hour time slot from 4 to 4.55, there will be the first of two circle training. So if you signed up to be one of the people that facilitates our circle practice, next week is one of the two opportunities to go to that training. Um, and then the next week on the 22nd from in the first hour slot will be our farewell party for Rhodey. Don't want to miss that to say thank you and celebrate all that she's meant to us. And then on the 29th will be the second circle facilitator training slot. So again, those are duplicates. You don't have to do both. But if you've signed up to do circle facilitation, it's either this coming week or the 29th. Um, child care is provided during those slots. Anybody else have announcements? I'll just put in a plug if you've thought about coming to Pub Group, uh, this is a good time to jump in um, because we're starting a new book for the rest of the fall called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Um, and so we'll be reading that through Thanksgiving um, at the Fed starting at 8.30. We socialize until about 9 and then talk from 9 to uh, just after 10. Um, so yeah, just, if you've thought about coming, um, it's a good time. Welcome. If you are new, we would love to talk to you, have a coffee, answer any questions you have. There are yellow cards on that back table that, um, where you can check about 
different things that you, information or meet with one of the pastors or staff. Um, so grab one of the, those and if you'd like to give the metallic bowl is the place to do that or you can do it online or mail it to our P.O. box. And community song, Brody. You guess. All right, we started this last week. Um, the adults are doing creation, obviously, and the kids are going to start that in October. So I thought we would just start with This is My Maker's World. So let's just all join in together. This is my Maker's World. And to in here quickly. Ramona, come on up and get start getting ready. But I just want to, because this is Ramona's first week with us in this particular role, to officially welcome her in that way. If you, yeah, you may have recognized Mona from such films as Singing Alongside Adam at, no, no, I'm yeah. sorry. No, the Simpsons reference. Um, but I have. Yeah, she's been here several times before, but as we were looking for an artist to sort of walk alongside us in this season, um, which is something that we're really, I think as many of you know, are, are hoping to do really intentionally as we take on this rhythm of six-week seasons to try as often as we can to find an artist, musical or otherwise, to sort of really intentionally travel with us for those topics and during that time. And so, yeah, we have happened upon Mona. And not only is she someone who spends time around churches and spends time doing music, but after we booked her for this season, I found out that she's actually releasing an album this month. So, you know, there you go. She is very much, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only found out afterwards. And, and to say that two of the songs that she's playing tonight are her own. Um, and so those are also both songs off the album that I hope we'll be hearing more from at some point this month. So all that say, welcome Mona, and yeah, thanks for leading us. Hi everyone. Hi. Hi. He stumbled into faith and thought, God, this is all there is. The picture in his mind arose. And the to breathe And all the gods and all the worlds began colliding on a backdrop of blue Blue lips, blue veins 
said I'll rest a little while But when he tried to walk again He wasn't child And all the people hurried fast, real fast And no one ever smiled Blue lips, blue veins, blue The color of our planet from far, far away Blue lips, blue veins, blue The color of our planet from far, far away He stumbled into faith and thought God, this is all there is the pictures in his mind arose and began to breathe and no one saw and no one heard they just followed a lead and all the pictures and began to breed. He started out beneath the knowledge tree, then they chopped it down to make white picket fences. I'm marching along the railroad tracks, I smile real wide for the camera lenses. They made it past enemy lines just to become enslaved in the assembly line. Jekterinsky to the front of the cathedral you have won, dear sir. May I congratulate you first? Ah, oh, what an honor. Human, human of the year, you And they're shaking in your pew The icons are whispering to you They're just old men Like on the benches in the park Except they're balding a spot side Glistening with gold 
to the front of the cathedral you have won. Well, thanks, Demona, for that is, uh, let's see, at least the fifth time I have tried to convince someone to play Human of the Year at Emmaus Way. And so, thank you. Um, I think that, and you're going to get a couple of these pairs tonight. One is Regina Spector, one is Mona's voice, but I think in each we get like a pair of songs that are really grappling with some of the grandeur that this theme of six, uh, taking on creation as a theme is inviting us into. You've got our planet from far, far away, the magnitude of that, and then this narrative that tries to situate us into that in a way that names and magnifies humanity as something deeply significant in a story that big. And I think that 
all the different ways to do that, all the ways that's been done badly, all the ways that we carry that story with us in good and painful ways are a lot of what we're trying to grapple with in the six weeks together. If you weren't with us last week, we had a great time um, in a circle process kicking off um, and, and if, if yeah, we should probably, we should probably send around the bulletin from last week. Introduced a lot of different theologians, thinkers, folks grappling with this creation narrative, what it has to offer, and then sat and listened to each other's voices on that question. What does a creation narrative offer us? And I think that question is one, not only we asked last week, but that we want to keep in our minds through this next, the rest of the six weeks, that we could maybe come out of this conversation together in this month or so as a community with some different sense about where I am now, where we are now as a community, what in this story do we not need to run from? What could we carry with us as something formative and as something that we could hold against our lives and our life together? So all that to say, we're continuing tonight. This was the night where um, we were going to do a homily in conversation. We've done this model uh, we're sort of our homiletician in residence, Molly, um, does what she does best and gives us a homily. And then we sort of throw all of our community conversation on the back end. We are still going to do that. She's just not here to do it. Um, and so uh, Molly spent the night last night, or most of it anyway, in the ER, um, kidney infection, not lupus, but lupus related. And so... Um, that is on the men. She's on meds. It'll, it'll, it'll be sorting itself out. But she got home late enough that we encouraged her not to come and give this text that she has written. So I will do it. And it will be fabulous. So that's where we are tonight, just to like name everything that everybody's doing um, and what roles we're playing. But yeah, as we always do, invite you to pass the peace of Christ to each other. I don't think any snacks made it back there tonight. So you have coffee and water to enjoy. Cool. And present this lovely text that Molly's put together. So if someone would... I'm willing to split it up if you feel daunted by the whole thing. But let's start by reading this Genesis 1 into the three, into the second chapter passage. This is one of two sort of back-to-back creation narratives that start the book of Genesis. And in terms of going through the six weeks, we're going to spend or really focus our energy this week in this first chapter and then move next week to the second But yeah, would someone take on reading this text for us before I read my own text for us? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. 
God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put vegetation, put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees of every kind on earth bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and plants bearing of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to live light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm, every weak bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals on the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals on the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind, everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree receiving its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day in Hallowed, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Thanks, Clinton. You can rest now. For one-seventh of the time that it took you to read that, you may rest. So I'm going to read this as if I wrote it and allow you to notice all the ways in which that is laughably not so. All right. What if we got or getting it all wrong with this first creation narrative, or at least major components? What if it's not about a litmus test or the exact possible beginnings of creation? Or even about if one gathers more possibility and awe toward creation from this text, or science, or vice versa. Or simply even a comparison of this text's similarities to other near-ancient Eastern narratives, or not. 
But rather, what if at the heart of it, the first creation narrative is a poetic, prophetic reminder of a God ever present, ever speaking things into existence, written to a people in desperation and exile in Babylon. Not as a comment on specifics of how the earth was formed, or even how one or was or is supposed to engage with creation, however badly this text has led some to do that, what if it was simply a powerful narrative to begin the story of our faith with a simple hope, God is here. On Monday evening, James and I sat under the trees at the Forest Theater to witness paper hand puppet shows, summer piece, We Are Here. Though fantastical, larger than life puppets, and more than a bit of whimsy, through those things we witness the creation of this earth. From the sun and moon and waters breaking forth to a simple acorn being planted, creation came alive. Squirrels and turtles and foxes and mushrooms and trees and roots and birds and butterflies and flowers and bees and seasons changing colors all came to be on that stage. The sheer beauty, delight and magnificence of creatures on paper hands earth was overwhelming. The show explored what it meant for us to be here, to be present, to show up for life. The creator shared, we are here to find the integrity in ourselves, to be accountable to one another and create change. We are here to protect the earth and to protect and nurture the children among us. We are here to grapple with some of the emerging monsters that we all create through our unconscious behavior and to imagine the solutionary earth defending creatures including us, that rise to transform themselves into a sustainable future. It wasn't lost on me that as we sat under the stars on a magical moving night, our siblings in the Bahamas were being slammed with the worst recorded hurricane they had ever experienced. And there we sat with a chasm of miles and unconscious actions that contributed to their destruction. Nor was it lost on me that we sat on land, creation taken from Shikori, Eno, and Sisipaha people, broken, inequitable, aching aspects of creation. It also wasn't lost on me that we're in a creation series at Emmaus Way, and though giant puppets and masks and stilts and shadows in motion to original music all those things are different. I wondered if maybe we are here to be reminded in this series and to claim a reordering interconnectedness between God, one another, all of creation, and even this text. Perhaps we are here to continue to create and live into that very reordering possibility that there can in fact be beauty and life and abundance and goodness out of chaos. A world of lions laying down with lambs and pharaohs of this world being defeated and a people's land being returned and restored. A world full of children having enough clean air to breathe and clean water to drink. Perhaps we are here to stand between two conflicting stories. The biblical story describing the splendor of God's creation in its perfection and today's lamentable state of the earth. And we ourselves are being invited to enter the theater of creation. 
no longer as a luxury, but rather with a call to rethink our relationship with the earth and with God, a possibility that might only be birthed out of a creation narrative like this one. Those for whom this story was originally written understood despair and brokenness. This creation narrative is known to be a piece of the priestly tradition written during the Babylonian exile and this work as a piece of that tradition is Israel's new way of thinking, a new thought. In the use of their faithful imagination, Israel's theologians are articulating a new world in which to believe and to live, refuting Babylonian theological claims. They're wanting to remind the Israelites, Yahweh is still God, one who watches over and is deeply invested in the well-being of creation. It's as if these Israelite theologians and writers wanted those going through the worst of the worst to intimately know when despair for the world grows in you and you wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what your life and your children's lives may be, you can go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. You can come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. You come into the presence of still water and feel above you the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, you can rest in the grace of the world and be free. It's as if the Israelite writers wanted their people to know that God is still here intimately interwoven in creation, and we are intimately interwoven with creation and with God. That's the starting point. But maybe we've gotten parts of that starting point, the text itself, a little wrong. For many of us, we glean meaning or possibility out of text through translation, but what if the translations themselves have been adequate or haven't given us the full possibility of what this creation narrative offers us? For example, was creation formed out of nothing or out of chaos? The text here really isn't that clear and Hebrew scholar Walter Brueggemann asserts that a better translation would read formless and void. So he asserts the very ambiguity of creation from nothing and creation from chaos, it is a rich expository possibility. We need not choose between either. We can choose both. What might we learn and be better able to lean into if we hold a God who continually creates in both void and in chaos? A God of the majestic and a God ever-present and moving in the current dire realities of life. Also, this whole thought, and God saw that it was good thing, what does good really mean? How might that phrase shape our understanding if we took the Hebrew more seriously and translated good, not as moral judgment, but closer to the Hebrew, pure beauty, satisfaction, delight? How are things shifted after each component of creation if God delighted? Pure, unadulterated delight even in the midst of a precarious relationship with all creation. What does it offer that God delights and so invites all of creation to delight in one another too? 
What does it mean? How does it shape us if a piece of this text that has been used to terrorize creation, language used for humanity dominating and centering itself, actually doesn't mean terrorizing in the Hebrew, but rather reveals that humanity is to care for, to tend, to be engaged with tenderness toward all creation, not destroy, dominate, or take for granted since we are all, in fact, interconnected. How might we take Sabbath, the last day when God not only delighted, but deeply delighted, and God's delight came not merely because of the rest he got, but because, as the Hebrew tells us, it's a day when we don't have to hoard and hustle because we can trust that there is, in fact, enough, in large part because creation is still ever creating through those seasons of rest. In the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, quote, there is a realm of time where the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisitions of things of space, becomes our sole concern. How might living our interconnectedness with God and one another, and all of creation be different, ever-changing, ever-transforming, if we started taking some of these revelations from the first creation narrative more seriously and left some of the other litmus tests, the less accurate starting points, even our own skepticism that this narrative even matters, behind. I was feeling some major feels throughout the entirety of We Are Here Monday night. But I didn't find myself weeping until it was the children in the play who reminded all creatures, humanity included, and even the beasts of capitalism and climate change that we are and we can change and be interwoven once again. All of us. It was through the children's very willingness to engage in delight and belief that something in the very spaces of void and chaos, even the capitalist monster of destruction, could begin to fall. And then more children joined in. Through song, through dance, tending and care of other creatures, they worked together to begin to curb back harsh realities of climate change and devastation. So that once again, just as the peace began, all of creation was interconnected, sharing, not hoarding, breathing more deeply together again. And I wonder if is in fact this child's wonder, resilient hope, fierce determination that will wake us up from the ways we've been getting things wrong, that will save us. For childlike wonder reminds us not only how we might live, but childlike wonder reminds us of a God, a radiating mystery inviting us from the beginning of time, in the midst of chaos and void and uncertainty, to delight, care, tend, share, and be interconnected, if we would but but respond. It is that childish willingness to hold on to mystery and possibility and hope in the midst of chaos and the void that reminds us there is still a God ever present, ever creating. 
It's a child's pure delight showing us that even in the darkest hours there is beauty still and we must hold on to and nurture that beauty. A child's capacity to care for and love others, all the others, even the bugs and grasses of the field helps us to slow down and really see what we've been trampling on and forgetting. And a child's simple, even innocent, loving actions remind us all that actions matter. All actions matter and can make a way for larger systemic actions if we but begin. As child and creation advocate Greta Thunberg convicts us, the moment we decide to fulfill something, we can do anything. But the opportunity to do so will not last for long. We must start today. We have no more excuses. I wanted to think about um, this idea that Molly brings up about God delighting. So she says, how are things shifted after each component of creation if God delighted? Pure, unadulterated delight, even in the midst of precarious relationship with all of creation. What does it offer that God delights and so invites all of creation to delight in one another too? So, Let's start with, what does it mean to delight? Um, what to you is delightful? What, are, what comes to mind when you think about yourself uh, delighting? And what's your relationship to the things that you delight in? When I think about the days where I experience delight, Um, the days with delight are days that we that we are able to move through life at more of a child's pace. I don't think adults are very good at delighting. I don't think that the schedules and machines we've made for ourselves that direct our days really foster much delight. Um, I think they actually conditions where we do the opposite of delight. We yell at each other for cutting each other off and stuff like that. Um, but when we try to do this intentionally, it doesn't always happen, but when we move at Judy's pace, sometimes it feels like you're going to be going to at Harriet's pace, which is very slow. Um, <laughs> There's just a lot of time and space to, like a moment seems fuller, and then there's a lot of savoring that can happen. Um, whether it's a grasshopper, whether it's, I don't know, just things that my adult mind easily settle in. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about um, Jesus um, commanding, encouraging or commanding people to, to be like little children. Um, and as I've raised my own children in a world that's very hostile to them um, and to their safety, I think that when I'm most like them, maybe that's when I can be, I am close. 
I like the idea of the savoring pace. I think that delight as an unburdening sort of, like similarly, that sense of um, self-forgetting, sort of being caught in something and not having the burden of whatever it is that we always walk through life with. Sense of our own, like over sense of our awareness of ourselves in the middle of something just actually like in that moment where we meet the thing that's happening. Um, the freeing the feeling, I think. Delight unburdens us. Yeah, as a self-conscious person. <laughs> I hope I don't embarrass him, but um, Brett was working today, and he, when he arrived, when Soren saw him, I saw delight on his face, and he was completely unselfconscious, and he just dropped everything and ran, and you know, unconcerned for his safety, dove into his arm, and so there's that freedom of any kind of self-consciousness. Anybody else? What's delightful? When you asked that question, the, the phrase I thought of was surprised, surprised by joy or surprising joy, I was sort of thinking about is that like, there are many things that I plan out, like I know I'm gonna like this thing, and so I'm gonna schedule it into my day, or gonna, and I'm gonna like that. But that's not delightful for me, I guess. Like the delightful I feel is sort of just like this spontaneity almost to it where it's just this emotion that I didn't schedule it to happen, it just happens. It's hard to it's hard to make yourself delight in something. If we if we take this idea um, that um, of God delighting in creation, and we think about our own delight experiences of it. Um, if we think, if we think about this story as um, a story of a present and delighted God. Um, creating the world, creating in the world, um, what kind of response does that invite? Like, if we, if, we, if we think about this story as a story about God's delight in the midst of creation. Mark, you know, so that's, 
don't know, I just feel like the story um, is almost like a, just a, a lesson in even how the creator really just showing us how to be creative for a hard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I think I've never had trouble with the, the fact that God delighted in what he created. Even though you're going to be at some creation, I mean, there's the joy of creating something, uh, which I think is very powerful. But, you know, I've always thought there's so much beauty in the world, the diversity of creatures, just landscapes that it always was intuitive to me that you would delight in all, you know, the, all that's in the world. Well, you can keep thinking about it. Like, what does this call us to do if we're, if we're reading this story? Um, in a different way. Think about like, the grandeur of the imagination that has been sort of thrown at me in regards to this text. Like, this is God's plan for not just all of creation, but your life. And then we get Paul in there and we start going, like, it's like a huge rock rolling down the hill, right? Like, expectation for what my being alive on this earth means for what it, it, it just it's weight upon weight upon trajectory upon trajectory and I think this idea of delight for me like really breaks that up and I think about some of the threads that you hear now about like self-care as resistance right and some of the machinery and like the social machinery that Marie's talking about to pause and pick it's actually a pushing back on this story or on any story that says there is a direction that you are going that's that way. It's like, what if you paused and like humbled yourself and stopped? Like what kind of resistant act might that be in the context of a more forceful, direct story? 
And I think about, you know, there's chaos created in my house because I so delight in the creations of my children. Like, I have a really hard time throwing away children's artwork. Like, when they bring it home and they've worked so hard on it and they're so proud of it and, you know, it's really meaningful to them, that is so precious. And so, you know, I feel like I need to, you know, I will sit there and I'll ask questions and I'll look at it and I'll sit it on the mantle and, you know, and so I feel like, um, you know, if we could bring that kind of attentiveness to creation, perhaps that would um, lead to a new way of being. Yeah, so uh, I was going through all my 30 binders from seminary this weekend um, because we're trying to make a, what was an office uh, into a, a room for one of our kids. And so I'm trying to throw it all out. I thought that would be easy because I actually think that most of what I learned there I don't have much use for her anymore. Um, but I did come across this class, which was uh, Theology and Pentateuch today, which I happened to like start reading through notebooks on it and happened to read like the Genesis 1. And I actually forgot that we were talking about this. Um, and one thing, like, as I was reading through that, thinking through that time, the revelation for me there was, you know, I had been raised in sort of a creation science world in which the most important thing about this text was to figure out how long these days were. We could help us explain the, you know, God creating the world and, 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 then, and then to deal with all the weird discrepancies. Like, there was light, but then he creates light, and, right? Um, and, and so one really good thing that I think came out of um, that education, that particular class, was an approach to thinking about this text that's literary and understands it in the context of the ancient Near East as a story of, a, of, um, of the creation of certain, he used the word kingdoms, I don't know, but certain spaces. And particularly around that word, the formless and void, um, uh, the translation that we were encouraged to adopt there was um, uninhabitable and uninhabitable. Um, for that tohu babohu there at the beginning, formless and void. To think of that as uninhabitable and uninhabited, and then the days, each being about the creation of a certain type of space, the sky above, the sky below, the, the waters, the land, and then putting inhabitants into that space. So make form fashioning these different spaces into places worthy of habitation and then and then filling them with inhabitants. Um, so I don't know, I think particularly thinking about um, you know Molly's meditation on paper hand and thinking about wider environmental issues in the Bahamas and thinking about that as a space that has become uninhabitable. Mm. And and I, I don't know, I guess the only that long explanation to get to the point that I guess part of the delight is the fittedness of inhabitants or the, the various creatures to the space. And not just a joy of the creation of the space or nature, but, but the fitting. And then looking around our worlds and seeing the ways in which um, the spaces of our world, the land, the skies, the seas, have become in so many ways uninhabitable. Um, 
and the inhabitants of those spaces, whether it's people in, in, in um, Guatemala during drought and having to leave the space has become uninhabitable, right? And, and, and trying to come to this space. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess I just wanted to kind of like put, didn't fit in the delight thing, but put that out there as something to have our eye on in the conversation is um, the people and the creatures that were made to be fitted to these spaces of delight. And, and that, that pairing as being the source of the delight. And looking around, I think the reason I have trouble finding delight is I see those that so sundered in our world. Brandon, I, I love what you say, and I wonder if, you said they don't kind of go together, but I wonder if, um, if, some, if the most vulnerable person in the community, say a child, is not able to have the time and space to delight in that space? Is that, is that space truly um, inhabitable for humans at all? Like, you sure they can live and work and die, but is it really inhabitable to think about um, the story, um, like what, what God's intending in the story? Um, and I would say no. I would say, like, um, Echo Wendell Berry and Well, this is our beginning, 
and we'll continue the conversation next week, adding in the piece of Genesis 2. Um,
thanks to Mona, to you all, for, yeah, getting us a bit further into this six-week conversation, wrestling about with creation. Um, as we come to the table tonight, I want to just meditate on the fact that God is here. Um, if that's one of the things we can take, as Molly says in the creation story, then I think it has to be one of the things that we take from arriving to any space, and especially perhaps this one. Maybe for good reason. Um, we have wondered where we still fit in this world. We may have felt done with it, wondered if it has done with us. The spaces that have tended us well may not fit us so well as once they did. And yet, God is here. We may wonder how that's supposed to work. How are we still supposed to find place for and with each other and a God that meets us in the midst in all the ways that we've done badly, done poorly by what we've been given. And yet, when we come to this table, we have bread that grew from seed, that was made into something that we can take in our bodies and will nourish us. We have wine that grew from vine and was made into something that tastes even in a two-buck chuck, good. As surely as you can drink it, as surely as you can take it into your body, it is good. There is still here things that were made for you and that fit you uniquely well. If you can still taste, if you can still find yourself in a story of a God who would insert God's self in human form in a story like this and invite us back to a table like this in a thing as simple as eating what's given us from the earth, then God is here in our midst. And if God is here, then there is some invitation this week and every week as we come back that there is some new beginning. There's some new creation. There's some new being and inhabiting and coming together that is still on offer insofar as you're willing to pick up a piece of bread and take some wine from someone else and put it in your body and accept that that is good and that you can still be good and there is a God who still delights in the good in you. So that's what I invite you in tonight because it's that simple and it's that grand. So welcome to this table. Enjoy each other. We always break bread and pour wine and juice for each other because if there is something that is good here, it will be found as likely in someone else's eyes as it was well in your own head. So come to this table. Enjoy.